Several years ago, a man named Norman Cousins wrote an article, an editorial actually, in the Saturday Review magazine. And it was about a conversation that he had on a flight to India. He was talking to a man named Satish Prasad. The man was dressed like a Hindu priest. And the man said he wanted to come to United, the United States to work as a missionary among the Americans. And Mr. Cousins assumed that he meant he wanted to convert people to the Hindu religion. But when he asked, Satish Prasad said this, Oh, no, I would, I would like to convert them to the Christian religion. Christianity could not survive in the abstract. It needs not memberships, but believers. The people of your country may claim they believe in Christianity, but from what I read at this distance, Christianity is more accustomed than anything else. I would ask that either you accept the teachings of Jesus in your everyday life and in your affairs as a nation, or stop invoking his name as sanction for everything you do. I want to help save Christianity for the Christian. Today, the, the title of our lesson is The Right Response. And I, I want to start reading in John chapter 12, but I want to start at verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. People always follow miracles. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on the account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. And the next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went, on, went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. So Jesus was making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem to celebrate the final Passover that he would celebrate. And as he did oftentimes and most of the times, he stopped to teach people. And as usual, the crowds hung on every word that he said because they were waiting for him to announce his Messiahship. Now, there was in the crowd two different groups of people they, though they were waiting on the same thing, they were waiting for different reasons. Some were waiting for him to announce that he was going to set up a nation and a mighty kingdom and overthrow the Roman government that had them in oppression. There were others that were waiting for him to proclaim that he was the Messiah so that they could turn him into the Romans for being a heretic. So there was two groups waiting for the same thing, yet for different reasons. Now let's go to John 12 and 23. And Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is what they're waiting for. Everybody's waiting. This is the big moment. The good guys are waiting for him to say, I'm getting ready to set up my kingdom. I'm going to be glorified. I'm going to proclaim I'm the Messiah. We're going to kick the Romans out. And we're going to take over. And the other one's going, here he goes. He's fixed to say something wrong. And we're going to turn him in. 
His next sentence, I'm sure they hung on this next sentence. Here it comes. This is what we've been waiting for for three plus years. The problem was that the next statement he made didn't follow anyone's expectations. Let's look what he said in verses 24 through 28. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be also. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. How about that? What they wanted to hear, instead of talking about this revolution that was to come, he spoke about death. He spoke about rebirth in the sense that if you take a seed and place it in the ground, it has to give up what it is as a seed, basically has to die, for it to come forth as a plant and produce more fruit. And they're thinking, that's not what we wanted to hear. We wanted to hear good stuff. We didn't follow you in here today and throw down palm branches so that we could hear you talk about dying and bad stuff. He even went on to say those that cling to their life will lose it. And then he went on to say that he was troubled. And I'm sure this is the, it's, it's sort of along the lines, John did not record the, the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus said, not my will but thine be done. But it gives the same feeling here that Jesus was feeling those things of, I don't know that I want to go through this but I will. The fleshly side of Jesus is saying, I know I'm fixing to go through some really bad stuff, but I, I just not looking forward to it. And then out of the sky, I'm assuming a voice speaks, a literal voice speaks to the people. You say, were you sure it was a literal voice? I'm positive. It was a literal voice. And I'll show you why in just a minute. Now, Something, there was only three times that an actual voice, that God spoke in an actual voice to the people. He spoke at Jesus' baptism. He spoke at the, the transfiguration, and this was the third time. Let's read verses 29 through, no, verse 28. I'm sorry, let's read verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Verse 29. The crowd that was there and heard it said, it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to them. So it was a literal voice because they thought it was thunder. Or they thought it was an angel that had spoken to him. Going on to through verse 33. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. 
But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now, when Jesus said that he would be lifted up from the earth, it kind of carried two meanings. One was an obvious that when he was crucified, he would be lifted up from the earth on the cross. That was one. But the phrase also carries the meaning of being lifted out from the earth too. So in one sentence, he spoke not only of his crucifixion, but he spoke of his resurrection. So he kind of covered the whole gamut there, that I will be lifted up. Again, these are not things that the people wanted to hear. Going on. And the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And then Jesus told him, you're going to have the light just a little while longer while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Now, as we said, verse 29 makes it really clear that there was a literal voice. But then after this voice spoke, Jesus made it perfectly clear that the voice was for them, not for him. The problem was that God himself had spoken to the people and they didn't hear him. Pastor Magine, Bishop Goldsberry, you wonder sometimes why you feel like you stand in this pulpit and nobody hears a word you said? God himself spoke to people and they didn't hear him. Because it wasn't what they wanted to hear. And a lot of times, as a pastor, I'm sure that people don't hear. I know in, in teaching, you say things and, and people don't accept it because it's really not what they wanted to hear. And the crowd missed the entire message because they were looking for something else. And the only thing they could think of here is God himself speaking to them. And the only thing they're thinking of was, well, how can this guy die if he's the Messiah? Because the Bible says that the scriptures that they had in their possession and heard in the synagogue said that the, the, the line of the Messiah would live forever. Now, if this guy is the Messiah and he says he's going to die, that doesn't make any sense. And in spite of the very voice of God speaking to them, they're going, hmm, I don't get this. Jesus was trying to make a point to them that the enemy was not the Roman government. The enemy was sin. The enemy was death. And he was letting them know at this time that he was going to conquer the real enemy, not the enemy they had set up in their mind. The crucifixion was going to be the death blow to Satan 
who he called the prince of this world. History has proven that the cross has been much more of a magnet for people than the miracles ever were. The people that followed Jesus for miracles, a lot of them were just there for the hoot and holler. They were just there for the free food and for the excitement of it all. There are churches today that there are people there for pretty much the same reason. They're not there because the cross means anything to them. They're there for just what might happen. We might get to see something cool today. They might sing that song I really like. Pastor Magine might finally preach on something I want to hear. And they really didn't have much reaction to the fact that Satan was going to be defeated. You know why? Because they didn't care about that. The only thing they cared about was that the Romans were defeated. They were looking at this earth and what was going on. We are oppressed. We have this group of people that live a long ways away from us in Italy. And here we are in the in, in Israel... And they have rule over us. They have their soldiers here. They put up their own government. And we have to listen to them and we're tired of it. And we want this Messiah to take them out. Instead, the only thing they hear is that the Messiah is going to die. Jesus warned them at this point. He said, look, the darkness is coming. And what he was saying is, I've told you time and time again that I am the light. And if I'm the light and I'm gone, then there will be darkness. And you need to get ready for that. He was trying to prepare them for reality because he had been teaching them all of these years. And remember, even his closest disciples, those, those 12 of his closest friends, there were times when they had arguments among themselves on who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom when Jesus sets up this big kingdom. They didn't get it. What was their commitment to? Their commitment was to, when Jesus sets up this kingdom on earth, I want to be part of it. And he was trying to tell them that if they put their faith in him now, then he would be there with them forever. And it says then he just drew away from them. It even says he went and he hid himself. I would think it probably was because all the discussion going on about this isn't what we want to hear. I've just got to get away from this because I know what's coming. And I just don't want to listen to this right now. In John twelve thirty seven, Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe 
in him. Skip down to verse 42. It says that yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear. They would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. John wrote kind of his frustration of those who believed in Jesus in their heart, but they wouldn't publicly profess it. And it was really because the people were being, they were afraid of being excommunicated from the synagogue. It wasn't anything new. This is something that had been going on since Jesus had been around. If you look at the, there was a blind man who had been blind all his life. He was born blind. And Jesus healed him, gave him back his sight. And instead of the parents being excited about their son, who's now a grown man, receiving his sight back, let's look at uh, John chapter 9, verses 20 through 23. Let's look what the parents said. We know he, they came to the parents and they said, now what, tell us again what happened with your son. He was blind, now he can see. We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how can he see now or who opened his eyes? We don't know. You have to ask him. He's of age and he'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. They saw the miracle. If anybody knew it was a miracle, it was his parents. They said, yeah, we know he was born blind. We know he can see now, but he's a grown man. You go ask him. Exactly. That's exactly what it was. The word synagogue comes from a Greek word meaning an assembly of people. It referred to not only the building where the people met, but it also referred to the group of people that met there. So being thrown out of the synagogue didn't necessarily mean that you couldn't come in the building. It meant that you couldn't socialize with the people that attended that building. They were the synagogue too. Excommunication of believers started at the time of Jesus. It came wor- became a lot worse after A.D. 70. The Sanhedrin, who was like the high court, more like the Supreme Court of our day, they drew up a formal procedure for excommunicating all Jewish Christians as heretics. And John writes about these people seeing miracles, but they still would not believe. He actually quoted Isaiah in verses 38 through 41. We didn't read this, but let's read it now. This is actually a quote from Isaiah that John wrote. Verse 38. Chapter 12. This is right after he said, even after they had seen the signs, they still would not believe. 1238.
John 12, 38. John. He was quoting Isaiah in John 12, chapter 12, 38. This was to fill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 39. For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. The same thing that Isaiah saw back in the Old Testament, John saw here again. The people saw, and they still didn't believe. And we look at them when we shake our head, but we see the same thing in our society today. There were people that believed, but they wouldn't profess it because they were afraid they'd lose out on some things. If they were thrown out of the synagogue, it didn't just mean they couldn't show up at church and read the scriptures on, on the Sabbath. It meant that it probably affected them socially, which probably affected them financially. And therefore, I'm not really willing to give that up. And John was upset because he felt like the people were more concerned what people thought of them than what God thought of them. John Huss, he lived from 1370 to 1415, was a dynamic preacher for reform of the church in Bohemia, what is now the Czech Republic. He believed the scriptures to be infallible and supreme authority in all matters. He was called to defend his beliefs at a special church conference. This is what happened at this church conference. Instead, he was burned at the stake for his beliefs in constant Germany. As he refused a final plea to renounce his faith, his last words were, What I taught with my lips, I seal with my blood. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to live it. And the title of our lesson again is The Right Response. And, and I believe the right response to Jesus' life and death is a total commitment to him. And there's people that would say today, well, I would, I would die for my beliefs. And yet those same people, some of them won't actually live for their beliefs. And why, well, why should we be totally committed? And the answer to that's real simple, because there's no, no such thing as a partial commitment. If your spouse said that they were faithful to you 85% of the time, would you count them as being faithful? No. It requires a total commitment from us. What, living for God, what kind of commitment are we to make? Some people would say, well, I, I believe. I believe in God. 
James 2 and 19 says that so does the devil. And I'm guessing that he's not very committed to God. Well, but I got saved. That's enough, right? Mm, No. Becoming a Christian, not just in title, but being a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ requires some things on our part. Look at Luke 18 through 29. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. See, commitment and being a Christian is not, it's not just a series of events. It's not just a process that we go through and we're done. When we're done, they lick this gold star and stick it on our forehead or they take a stamp and stamp our forehead that says saved and we're done. That's not commitment. The commitment that we are to take I believe if you look through the Bible, and we're going to look at it a little bit here this morning, is to follow the life of Jesus and to strive to be like Him. Hence, we're called Christians because we want to be like Christ. The Bible talks about making a start in your commitment. So where do we start? Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you you confess and are saved. Skip down to verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible also says in Acts 2, 38 and 39, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So here would be the start. We confess with our mouth that He is Lord. We believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And then it says to call on his name. That's in Romans. In Acts, it goes to the next step, and it says that we have to ask for forgiveness. We have to ask for rep- we have to repent, which is asking for forgiveness and changing our direction. Again, and we've talked about it before, repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. If you say, I'm sorry, and you don't change, then you probably really aren't sorry. So repentance is asking for forgiveness and changing our direction or the, cha- the direction that we're headed in life. The next thing it says is, is to be baptized. Bapti- baptism is a sign of our decision to accept and follow Jesus as Lord of our lives. There's nothing magic in the water. It's not super secret blessed water. It's water that came out of the tap. It's symbolic. 
Baptism is symbolic, and it's done in obedience to the Scripture. The Scripture says to be baptized. We do it in obedience, and it symbolizes something. The symbolism is of joining Jesus in his death and resurrection, the death being the repentance, dying out to sin, and the resurrection being that we are buried in the water and we rise to a new life. It's all symbolic. Some people look at it like, well, it must be magic that I get dipped in this water and I come up. No, it's obedience. And it symbolizes something that it actually makes a statement that we are being obedient to what the Word of God says. It's also symbolic of the cleansing of our lives from sin. It symbolizes a washing away of the sin. And that sin is what separated us from God. If you've never been baptized, I would urge you to talk to pastor after church this morning. And he will be more than happy to discuss with you more the full meaning of baptism. And the Bible says then in Acts chapter 2, that we will receive His Spirit. It is a promise. The Holy Spirit is a gift that is promised to everyone. Acts 2.39 says that it is for you and your children and to all those that are afar off. That's what it says. So it is for everyone. Some people would say, well then, if I do... This, 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 and this, and I'm okay, and that's all God requires of me. Mm, no, not really. And there are some people that that's the way they live their life. I was baptized, repented, and God filled me with the Spirit 167 years ago, and bless God, I'm still going. That's great. But God did not save us just to save us. In fact, when we are saved and we have received salvation, that really is just the beginning. You have covered the very basics of salvation, but being a true committed Christian is a whole lot more than that. For all the people that would say, well, the only thing that God requires me is to be baptized and filled with the Spirit. That's wrong. Just going to tell you this morning. It's wrong. That's not all God requires of you. A friendship does not end with making the first acquaintance. If you go through all those steps that we just talked about of salvation... You have basically become acquainted with God. It would be very hard to say when you meet somebody for the first time, this is my best friend. You don't know them. That's right. Relationships only grow when we spend time with that person. Same with our relationship with God. As we spend more time with God and we spend more time following after the Word of God, we will see that relationship between us and God grow stronger. After we have been baptized and we've received His Spirit, we have to keep growing in our faith. 
We have to keep growing in our commitment to the one that we have that relationship with. There's people that say, well, I've been saved. What have you done with your salvation? What do you mean? I go to church every Sunday. Okay. So what are some of the things that God wants us to commit to? I'm not going to try to cover all of them, but we'll cover a few of them this morning. I would ask that if you are going to make a commitment to something, make a commitment to talk to God. It's hard to have a relationship with someone you don't ever talk to. In fact, the longer you don't talk to them, the further apart that relationship gets. And prayer is simply talking to God in our own words. There's no set thing that you have to pray. The Lord's Prayer is great, but it's not something that we should just memorize. It's a pattern. It's an outline of how we should pray. It's okay to say the Lord's Prayer. That's great. But when we pray, we are actually just talking to God in our own words, as we would a friend. Set aside some time every day to talk to God. It might be in the morning, it might be at your lunch break, it might be at night before you go to bed, but sometime during the day, set aside some time to talk to God. doesn't have to be a, an hour. If you, if you are not praying on a regular basis and you say, well, I'm going to start praying an hour a day. No, you won't. You won't start at an hour a day. It's like saying, well, I'm going to start running, so I'm going to start running 15 miles a day. It, it just won't. It won't happen. Start off with a short period of time. And you will find the better acquainted you get with God, the longer time you will spend talking to Him. Kind of like friends. When you first meet somebody, the conversation maybe is a little awkward and a little forced and, and you're having to come up with things to say. And it's kind of small talk. How's the weather? So, have you lived here long? But once you get to know Him, you just talk about stuff. And with God, maybe when you first start praying on a regular basis, you find it difficult to really what to say. But the closer the relationship gets, the easier you'll find, and you'll find yourself spending more time talking. You might want to develop a practice of talking to God all day long. First Thessalonians 5 and 17. Pray continually. In the King James Version, it says, pray without ceasing. And that doesn't mean everywhere you go. Thank you, Lord. Oh, I'm, God. I'm glad you're here. It means to stay in an attitude of prayer. Stay in that recognition that God is always there and you're always in His presence. It's not that hard to do. And if you've made a commitment to talk to God, I would ask you to make a commitment to listen to God. Talking is good, but it's hard to have a relationship if one person does all the talking. And gentlemen, I'm not going to go there. 
One way we listen to God is to hear what he is saying through his word or the Bible. Be committed to reading the word. See, in, in the scripture we read today, God actually spoke down from heaven to these people. But if you also remember, there was only three times that he did that. And if the only time you ever hear anything from God is when he speaks in an audible voice down from heaven, you probably won't hear from him very often. But there are ways that we can hear from him. Read the Bible. And we've said it before. We don't read the Bible for God. He already knows what it says. Another way to listen to God is to sit quietly. Maybe after you read your Bible, just sit. After you've been praying, maybe just sit in a, in a time of meditation. Look what David said in Psalm 46 and 10. Be still and know that I am God. This is God speaking to David. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Sometimes we just have to be quiet. I have a friend that has been going through some things. His name's Ray. I've talked about Ray before. And Ray has really made a tremendous change in his life and has come such a long ways. And because of some things in his past, and we've talked before about how when you are saved, sometimes you still have to deal with some things in your past. Because of some things in his past, recently he had an outstanding warrant for a probation violation, so he got picked up and he got put in jail. And Ray was calling me every day, and then he quit calling. Didn't know what happened. So I went to court the other day with him, and he actually got out, and he's doing great. But he came to me, and he, and he said, I want to tell you something. He said, I didn't call, quit calling you because I was mad. Well, Good. He said, I finally realized. He said, my sister had sent me this coffee mug, and I finally realized that what I needed to do was what the Scripture said on that coffee mug. It said, be still and know that I am God. As I sat in that jail, I finally realized that God was in control. And for me to be all upset about it when I couldn't do anything about it served no purpose so the only thing I could do was to be still and know that he was God. He said, and when I did that, I was okay with it. Sometimes we want to hear from God. We just stop and listen. God will speak to us a lot of times if we will stop long enough to hear what he has to say. Now, I will tell you this also. God will never tell you anything in the Spirit that doesn't match up with what's in the Bible. If somebody comes to you and says that, well, God told me this, this, and this, and it goes against the Bible, God didn't tell them that. God does not give brand new revelations that go against the Bible. But when we sit and listen to what he has to say, 
a lot of times he will help us to understand how we can apply what we just read to situations in our life. We read it and we go, I just don't know what that meant. I just don't know what that said. I read the words, but it just doesn't make sense. And then we sit in quiet meditation and all of a sudden it speaks to us through the Spirit. Remember that Spirit that's promised to everyone that's in our lives, the Holy Spirit that's in our lives? It speaks to us about what we read. So we've talked about making a commitment to talk to God. We make a commitment and listen to God. I would ask that you make a commitment to talk about God or witnessing. Take a proactive stance about telling other people about your relationship. You don't have to wait till somebody asks you something. You can tell somebody what God did for you. And you don't have to do it in an obnoxious or overbearing way. That doesn't do anybody any good when we do it that way. Someone once said that sharing our testimony of what God has done for us is like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. When we've discovered something good, we don't want to keep it to ourselves. Another thing I'd ask is make a commitment to being and together with God's people. Attend church regularly. It won't save you. I'll just tell you that. Going to church won't save you. But it will certainly help you in your journey through this life in living for God. Spend time in worship with other believers. Being with other Christians in a situation like this helps our faith to grow. Because we hear people talk about things that God has done for them and the word of their testimony increases our faith to know that God cared about them so He must care about me. Also, it's a time you might encourage somebody else. We get support. We get instruction. All of those things happen when we gather together as a congregation. And it's not just a commitment to membership. It's a commitment to God. Amen. Remember, membership will not save you. Bill Hybels is the pastor of Willow Creek Community Church in South Barrington, Illinois. It's a small church of about 15,000. And Pastor Hybels says that in their church, they work overtime at two things. Turning pew sitters into disciples and moving comfortable Christians into radical kingdom builders. How about that? It's a common misconception among a lot of people that that church membership is kind of like joining Costco. You hear the word membership and it must mean that it's a club. You, um, you sign up and you put your name on a roll, you pay some dues and you show up for a few meetings. And therefore I'm a member. And for a lot of people that's their salvation. Membership will not save you. But it is important that we spend time 
in church, in service, in worship with other people. There are people that, that call themselves Christians that never show up to church other than Easter and Christmas. Three pastors got together for coffee one morning and they, they found out that all of their churches had bat infestation. And the first pastor said, I got so mad, I got a shotgun out, went in the auditorium and just started shooting at him. He said, I didn't hit a single one, just blew holes all in the ceiling. Second one said, well, I, I did a little bit better than that. I actually trapped them and took them about 50 miles out of the city and let them go. And by the time I got back to the church, they were already there. And the third pastor said, well, I haven't had any trouble at all getting rid of them. He said, how'd you do it? He said, I baptized and made them members. I haven't seen them since. I'll let you think about that one. Another thing we need to commit to is servanthood. The Bible speaks of a man that was totally committed to God in spite of a lot of faults and sin. His, man, his name was David. Acts 13 and 22. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him. This is God. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. This is God speaking about a man. I have found a man after my own heart. And I believe one of the things that made David a man after God's own heart was the he understood servanthood and humility. You have to remember, David learned a lot about servanthood as a shepherd, tending the sheep for his family. Generally, it was the youngest boy that had to take care of the sheep. He also learned servanthood when his brothers were fighting the Philistines up in a war. And David wasn't fighting, but his father gave him food and stuff to take to his brothers. And these really weren't sought-after positions. And they weren't highly regarded either. But David still did it. Later in his life, that same servanthood still showed. Even though he had been anointed as king, Saul was still the king. And even though Saul was trying to kill him, he still showed a servant's attitude to Saul. He had a chance to kill Saul several times. And he said no. He told his men, don't touch him he showed humility and servanthood there was a time after he became became king that the prophet nathan came to him and pointed out some sin in david's life he could have just as easily had nathan taken out and had his head cut off and gone on with his life but he didn't Instead, with a servant's heart, he sought after forgiveness. Psalm 54, 51, verses 1 through 4. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, 
according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Skip down to verses 16 and 17. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He was one of the most powerful men in the known world. But he still knew what servanthood was. In a lot of the Psalms that you read that David wrote, he didn't write all of them, but in many of the ones he wrote, he describes himself as David, the servant of the Lord. It's interesting to note that there is not a single one where he describes himself as David, the king of Israel. Servanthood. And what should servanthood be to us? John 12 and 26. We read this scripture today. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Mark 10, 44 through 45. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Not even the Son of Man, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what does servanthood mean? It mean it means to give back from what God has given us. Now, what's the first thing that goes through everybody's mind? Money. That's not what we're talking about. Hold that thought. What about our time? What about our abilities? What do you mean? Do we give back a portion of our time to the work of the Lord? Well, I don't know what you're talking about. Do we contribute to outreach for High Point Church? Do we consider teaching small groups of people a Bible study, whether it be Sunday school or a home Bible study? Do we give service as ushers? And we have the greatest ushers that ever ushered at High Point Church. Do we give service in helping keeping this facility clean? And we have a great group of people that do that. But they would probably appreciate if there were more. There are so many things... And it's kind of like, and I know we've never heard this term before, finding your place in ministry. How about that? All that direction just came right back to the same thing. Finding our place 
in ministry. Now, it does also mean financially. But I'm going to leave that to be taught by someone else. And see, some people can do one of those things. Some people can do another. There are some that can do several. The one thing is that everyone can do something. Now, just so no one thinks that what I'm teaching here this morning is that salvation is of works. Let me explain something. Let me say what salvation is. It's a gift of grace to us that is only because of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross. That's what salvation is. There is nothing that we can do to earn it. It's already paid for. And if we could pay for it, we could never come up with enough money to pay for what salvation would cost. But the thing that I'm talking about today is that when we realize what Jesus has done for us, we will willingly commit our lives and our resources out of gratitude, love, and devotion. I'm not saying that these things will save you. I'm saying that when you have received salvation, you'll want to make the commitments. No one was ever called and saved to sit. The Bible speaks of that there were those that were called to be teachers and apostles and all these different things. And there's not one place in there in any version of the Bible I've ever read that said, and some were called to be sitters. It's not there. If we treasure our salvation and we feel like that it's a precious gift, why would we not want to share it? And in the things we've talked about today, some of them have been things that we can do to help ourselves. Some of them are things we've talked about to help others. And I'm sure there are those that would say, well, what is the big deal with commitment? I believe that without commitment, we don't accomplish things. I have found in my short life that when somebody says, I'll try it, it generally means I'll fail. Jesus never called anyone to try it. In fact, if you look back at the the rich young ruler, he came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do? And he said, well, I want you to take all that you have and sell it and follow me. 
And it says that the rich young ruler went away sorrowful because he had a lot of stuff. Jesus never called us to try it. He didn't tell the young, rich young ruler, take your stuff and go put it in a storage unit and then follow me for a little while and see what you think. And if you don't like it, you can always go back and get your stuff out of the storage unit. He said, take it all and get rid of it and follow me. Why? Because that is a commitment. That is a call to a total commitment. When Jesus called his disciples, he went to them as they were fishing, and it says that they laid down their nets and they followed him. And I believe that that same call for a total commitment that Jesus called for in that day, he calls for us today. And the question I would leave you is, are you willing to make that commitment in your life? God bless you.